We read scripture this morning from Isaiah 54. Isaiah chapter 54. We hear the inspired word of God. Sing, O barren, thou that didst not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, thou that didst not travail with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith the Lord. Enlarge the place of thy tent, and let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitations. Spare not, lengthen thy cords, and strengthen thy stakes. For thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left, and thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. Fear not, for thou shalt not be ashamed, neither be thou confounded, for thou shalt not be put to shame, for thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth and shalt not remember the reproach of thy widowhood any more. For thy maker is thine husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And thy redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. The God of the whole earth shall he be called. For the Lord hath called thee as a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit and a wife of youth. When thou wast refused, saith thy God. For a small moment have I forsaken thee. But with great mercies will I gather thee. In a little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment. But with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord, thy Redeemer. For this is as the waters of Noah unto me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be wroth with thee, nor rebuke thee. For the mountains shall depart, and the hills be removed. But my kindness shall not depart from thee, neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith the Lord, that had mercy on thee. O thou afflicted, tossed with tempest, and not comforted, behold, I will lay thy stones with fair colors, and lay thy foundations with sapphires. And I will make thy windows of agates, and thy gates of carbuncles, and all thy borders of pleasant stones, and all thy children shall be taught of the Lord, and great shall be the peace of thy children. In righteousness shalt thou be established. Thou shalt be far from oppression, for thou shalt not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near thee. Behold, they shall surely gather together, but not by me. Whosoever shall gather together against thee shall fall. For thy sake. Behold, I have created the smith that bloweth the coals in the fire, and that bringeth forth an instrument for his work, and I have created the mass, the waster to destroy. No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. We read that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. We take as our text, verse, four, verse 13. And all thy children shall be taught of the Lord, and great shall be the peace of thy children. 
Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, the people of Judah had to hear some harsh words from Jehovah as they spent time in captivity in Babylon. Chapters 40 to 47 of Isaiah expose the sinfulness and the inability of Judah to deliver themselves. The sins of Judah are exposed by the prophets. The sins are laid out clearly before them, and their selfishness is set forth. They are living for themselves. They're pursuing their own pleasure, their own glory. And that's been their experience from the womb due to their depravity. There's no way of escape, no way of judgment by themselves. God lays before them the reality of their hopelessness. And he does so through the prophet Isaiah. The response of Judah, strikingly, but also we can relate to it, is that of self-pity. Oh, woe is me. What can I do? After all, this is my lot. This is the circumstance of my life. And so, in a certain sense, Judah just throws their hands up in despair. Why turn and repent from their sins? God's going to punish them anyway. They're not deserving of anything different. What would their repentance even begin to accomplish? There's a sense of despair that one reads as one proceeds through the prophet and gets the response of Judah. And again, that's something we can relate to. There are times when we see also who we are, what we've done. We focus on the situation and the circumstance of our life and we're inclined to despair. Where's hope? But God focuses Judah on the coming of the Savior. He directs our attention away from ourselves to Christ and the reality of Christ's work for them and in them. And so he brings them to Isaiah 53. We could spend a whole hour talking about the context of this passage, which we do not have time for. But Isaiah 53, the familiar passage of the coming of the Messiah, And so that's the preceding chapter now, to this chapter. Talking about the coming of the Messiah who is wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquity. God comes to this despairing people and says, even though there's nothing you can do, nothing you've done to escape this trouble, look what I've done for you. I am raising up for you a deliverer. And he expounds on that the marvelous work of this Messiah in delivering his people from their bondage to sin and reiterating the fact that God has created a people through whom he will show forth his praise. That's a theme throughout. He's expressed it in Isaiah 43, continues to make that emphasis throughout. Even though they've forsaken him, even though they're unworthy, God in his faithfulness will preserve and keep covenant. And that's what we hear this morning in the face of also our depravity, our unworthiness, at times the hopelessness and despair that floods around us. This beautiful chapter directs Judah to her hope, to her God, and to the blessed place that God has given to her. Although they have nothing Of themselves, and they deserve nothing to commend to themselves. God will take them 
and he will make her his bride. That's verse 5. For thy maker is thy husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and thy redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth, shall he be called. Jehovah of hosts embraces them as his own bride. And not only will he take care of her, but he's also going to see to then the safety of her children. And that's, again, a marvelous wonder. God's faithfulness to his Judah, but then also providing for their children and seeing to it that their children will be taught of the Lord. Now that's the safety, that's the blessedness of the church. That Jehovah God comes to us in the midst of our despair, our hopelessness. Times when we are thinking as though it doesn't really matter what I'm doing. It doesn't really matter how I live because after all, I'm a sinner. And it seems as though everything is against me. And God says, no, everything's not against you. Everything is for you because I've taken you and made you my bride. And not only am I going to bless and care for you, also your children. Now evidence that these words are for the church are found in the illustration that God himself gives there. Verse 5 talks about God taking Judah as his wife. And then if you recall, we have in Ephesians 5, verse 22, God speaking about the fact that he takes his church as his bride. God doesn't have two wives. He has just one wife. So who is it, Judah or the church? We realize Judah and the church are one and the same. God is committed faithfully to one wife, and therefore Judah and the church are one and the same, the bride of Jehovah God. Old Testament Israel and the church, his covenant people. And we take this passage then directed to us, the church of Jesus Christ, in the New Testament age, in the midst of our self-pity, in the midst of our despair, despair due to our own unworthiness, the situation of the world around us, even the situation of the church world and even our own churches, God comes to us at the occasion of baptism and he addresses us. You are my bride. I pledge my love to you and all your children shall be taught of me. We look at the wonder of that, taught of the Lord, noting the heritage, the instruction, and the peace. Verse 17 states, This is the heritage of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. As we noted, God's covenant faithfulness is on the foreground here in this passage, and immediately we do well to focus on that glorious heritage that God has given to us. As we bring that to the attention of the families through family visitation from Psalm 16, that heritage, that inheritance that God has given to us, God comes here to his people with a marvelous word. A people that have proven to be sinners, a people that have proven again and again to forsake God's goodness and mercy. And what does God say in verse 17? No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. Every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment, thou shalt condemn. God comes to his precious bride and says, Don't worry about what people think. Don't worry about what people say. I have embraced you in love and you are mine. And he comes then with a beautiful word of encouragement. 
as they despair, as they resign themselves to the fact that they're never going to be the great nation they had hoped to be, God corrects all their misunderstandings. As they look around them and they see how difficult the situation is, how powerful the armies around them are, and they see that there's nothing that they can do to turn matters around, God agrees. And God says, you're right. There's nothing you can do. But I will do it. And I will do it in my faithfulness to my covenant. Verse 10. My kindness shall not depart from thee, neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith the Lord that hath mercy on thee. Look away from yourself and look to me and look to my promises. That's what we need to do too, beloved. We look away from ourselves, look away from our situation, and we look to God. And we look to the glorious promises of God. In verses 1 and 2, he comes and he instructs Judah to enlarge her house. Again, striking. What does that mean? Enlarge the place of thy tent, verse 2. Let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitations. A marvelous word here of God. God coming to his church, to his saints, and God saying, I am going to cause you to grow. I'm going to cause increase. Barrenness was a picture of God's favor being removed. God says, sing, O barren. I am building your homes. I am building your families. And God directs them to the spiritual character and nature of that promise. I am building the church. And I'm building my church from among your children. So that Judah is pulling into herself. She's thinking as though we're just going to disappear. We're going to just perish eventually because God's blessing and favor is not upon us. And God says, no, no. Enlarge your house. Add on because I am going to bless you and I'm going to prosper you with children as well as through missions bringing others in in order that my people might flourish but even more than that what does God give to his bride something so precious righteousness and again we go back to verse 17 this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their righteousness is of me saith the Lord What a precious gift of grace. She who herself is corrupt and sinful, who knows that she can't have any peace of herself, is given this instruction. What's most important is not what you think of yourself. What's most important is not what you can accomplish. Don't establish your value based on what others think of you. You are righteous in me. And your value is found in what I declare concerning you. Don't be concerned about what Babylon is saying. Babylon is trying to demean you. They're saying that you'll never be a mighty nation, that you're never going to accomplish the purpose and promises that God said. Don't listen to Babylon. Here's what I, Jehovah, your maker and your husband, has to say to you. Your righteousness is of me. You are righteous, and that righteousness doesn't depend on anything of yourself. It's of me. And remember, this judgment that I make concerning you, I have made this judgment that you are righteous. 
Don't be concerned about the backbiters, the slanders. Don't listen to what people are saying about you. Just listen to what I say about you. But then also remember this judgment when you think upon your fellow saints. Don't rise up quickly in judgment of your fellow saints. Remember, they too are valued and worthy because of my righteousness alone. Beloved, what reason for encouragement and deep humility. God speaking here the words and the wonders of what Jesus accomplished on our behalf. We call it double imputation. He took all our sins upon himself in order that he might cover us with his righteousness. That's the wonder of God's covenant and of God's salvation. And what's the fruit of that? It's peace. Marvelous peace. A peace that doesn't involve any conditions. A peace that doesn't depend in any way on anything of myself. It's a wonder of God's sovereign grace. A peace that has to do with Jesus Christ and his work on our behalf. We struggle sometimes to know peace. And sometimes that can be a real battle in our lives. But often is not the problem that we, like Judah, are looking at ourselves. We're looking at our situation, which is so limited. And as we get caught up in ourselves and our situation, we're inclined then again to self-pity. We're consumed with what others are doing against us, what others have done to us. And we need to hear this admonition of Jehovah God. Don't be consumed about what others have done to you. Focus on what Jesus has done for you. And focus on the wonder of grace that he has performed in you by his spirit. In other words, don't identify yourself by those about, those who are abusing you, those who are taking advantage of you, those who are trying to bring you into despair. Your identity is found in me and in the fact that you are righteous in me. Your identity is in what I've done for you and what I'm doing in you. Now what a wonder, beloved. Your identity is not that you're a victim of someone else. Your identity is not that you're enslaved to sin and you find yourself in captivity. Your identity is that you're redeemed and that you belong to me and that I have bought you and I have married you and I will make you righteous in me. Beloved, in that there's peace. There's marvelous peace. And God works that glorious peace in our lives so that we know who we are, to whom we belong. And though things may seem hopeless at times, though we may be inclined to despair, we're drawn away from self and we're directed to God and to his faithfulness and to his promises. Now this is especially remarkable again if we consider the circumstances in which Isaiah is speaking this. They're living in captivity far away from any signs of God's presence. There's no worship. There's no temple. There's no active priesthood. Nobody's bringing sacrifices. It would be easy for them to argue, obviously, God has forsaken us. It would be easy also to get caught up in the fact that it'd be better if we didn't have children. Let's not bring children into this mess. God's not present here in Babylon. 
It would be not good for us to bring children into this wicked world in which we find ourselves. And why devote ourselves to all the energy of teaching and training these children if we're only going to die anyway? We're just going to perish. If our salvation is up to us, what hope is there? If the salvation of my children is up to me, I would despair. But again, God says, no, no, don't be discouraged. Don't despair. I will teach. This is my work. God commands them in the first verse, sing. Bring forth children. Why? All thy children shall be taught of the Lord. I'm at work in my church, God says. And as my servants, you will be given everything that you need. And lacking the outward signs, you have my presence with you. And God will restore them through Jesus Christ, and he will bring them again into the enjoyment of his righteousness and of his peace. Their strength and their salvation is in Jehovah God alone. And so good and so faithful is this God that he's not just a God to them, but also to their children. All thy children. God will teach all. Now that's an emphatic promise. In no way is this promise conditional. And that, in order to understand, then directs us to see that the promise can't be then to every one of our physical children. The promise is a promise of grace, and it's a promise according to God's faithfulness and God's goodness. Some say that the covenant was with all, but then the peace of that covenant depends on the child fulfilling his or her salvation. The child needs to fulfill the conditions in order to be received by God and receive that peace. There's no place for conditions in this history. And just think about it again. There's nothing in this history that points to Judah and to her faithfulness or her fulfilling any conditions that made herself worthy. Again and again, the emphasis is on Judah's inability, her unworthiness. But Jehovah and his covenant faithfulness and his preservation of his church. And the focus of this chapter is on grace. It's on mercy. It's on faithfulness. That in spite of your unfaithfulness, in spite of the fact that my bride has forsaken me again and again, I am faithful and I will maintain my covenant and I will teach all the children. So the all then is not an all without exception. All the children without exception. Those who are included in the heritage of God are the spiritual children of Abraham. And who is that seed? Christ. He's the seed, and in him all that belong to him, as Galatians 3.16 and Galatians 3, verse 29 point out. Romans 9, which we intend to read and look at this evening, explains that God's covenant promise is never frustrated. It's never of no effect. And that's because while some in Judah perished, they were not all Israel that outwardly made up Israel. Jehovah is sovereign in salvation. And some embrace Christ, some walk in thankfulness, others are hardened in their sin. Painful as this is for parents to watch and see, it's a reality 
Children refuse admonition. Children refuse the admonition of the church. And parents then see their children continue in unbelief, resisting admonition, persisting in that. Painful it is. More painful sometimes than having to bring that child to the grave. But we confess, God doesn't owe us anything. We're not deserving of anything more. It's of his mercy that he saves any. And beloved, as we stand before God and we stand before his covenant promise, we confess how merciful and how gracious God is. What a wonder that according to his marvelous goodness and mercy, he saves his own from among our children. And so expansive his grace and his love is that he saves the majority. What a wonder. Now as children, as young people, all of us sometimes, we face this question, how can I know that I am numbered among those who are this heritage? Am I one of God's children? And those are valid concerns. They're questions that sometimes our children ask. Our young people wrestle with them. As the word of God comes to you, how do you respond to that word? Do you hear the gospel? Do you believe the gospel? Do you trust in Jesus Christ as the one who saved you and who delivered you from your sins? Do you love God for what God has given to you? And when you hear instruction and training about how you're to honor your parents, do you desire to show that honor? Now, that doesn't mean that there's not going to be rebellion. There's rebellion in all of us still. But is there that desire to show love and to show honor to your parents? As you're admonished and as you're corrected, do you want to love God and walk in obedience to Him out of thankfulness? You're a child of God. God's at work in you by His Spirit. He's the one that presses upon you that desire. He's the one that gives you to know Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord. And you're sorry for your sin. You know that your sin is an offense against God and that grieves you. And you receive then admonition. When someone comes to correct you, humbly, you acknowledge it. You receive that admonition. You're one of God's children. And you're the beloved of God a child of God and rejoice in that wonder and be thankful and seek then in everything that you do to walk in that gratitude to God because God has worked faith in your heart and despite your weakness despite your sin you are able to know that he gave Jesus as your savior God talks here about the instruction then that he provides us, shall be taught of the Lord. This is a word of salvation. God is the Savior of our children. The church is the company of the redeemed. We confess that. It's a gathering of those who have been taken out of the world and who have been brought by God into the wonder and the joy of his presence and his fellowship. When God says these words, he's saying, I will save your children and I will make my children from among yours. How does God save our children? By teaching them 
And that's the emphasis here. Your children will know me, God says. Now, God didn't move Isaiah simply to say, your children are going to know me. I'm going to save your children. Instead, he moves Isaiah to write by his spirit, and all thy children shall be taught of the Lord. That emphasizes the activity of teaching. And it emphasizes the fact that the teacher is Jehovah God. I will teach. God himself, the all-powerful, effective teacher of the children of the church, and the one upon whom the salvation of the church and her children depends. I will teach your children. God says that he will draw them to himself. It's striking that this verse is quoted in John 6. In John 6, you recall, Jesus had performed the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. And immediately, crowds are clamoring after him. But then Jesus makes clear who he is and the reality of the fact that he is spiritual. He's not here to save them from a physical perspective. And the result then is many of them turn away from him. But Jesus then emphasizes in verse 37, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. And then again in verse 39, And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And then again in verse 44, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him and I will raise him up at the last day. In other words, Jesus is saying, every last one of my children will come to me. And how will they come to me? Because I will draw them to myself. Now, how will he draw them to himself? The next verse is striking. Verse 45, it is written in the prophets, and they shall be all taught of God. That's a reference to this verse. They shall all be taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. How is it that our children come? How is it that our children hear? It's because Jehovah God has taught them. And they have learned and they have heard of him. And therefore, as a response to that instruction, they come and they are gathered. How can our children who are born in sin who are spiritually blind, be saved. Because God says, I am God. And I am the Savior of your children. And I'm not just going to merely give them an intellectual understanding and knowledge. I'm going to make them my disciples. I'm going to draw them to myself in such a way they will follow me. And they will think and they will speak and they will believe my words and my sayings. This is what a father desires. A father desires that his sons and daughters follow after his own way, after his own image. And Jehovah God now works that wonder in those who are poor, those who are sinners, those who are cast off in order that they might be his disciples and belong to him. This teaching is contrasted with our teaching. Our teaching is often so weak, so sinful, but 
Jehovah God's teaching is all-powerful. Our teaching and our example is often not what it ought to be. Jehovah is faithful. And so this teaching then is a powerful, creative work of God. God speaks, and by his speech, he creates everything that was not as though it was. God marvelously speaks in the hearts of our children, and he testifies by his word and by his spirit that they belong to him. And he gathers them. He works a wonder in their hearts. He brings them out of their depravity into the enjoyment of life. And God's not dependent on any means. God performs this wonder by his grace and by his spirit. This is God's work. I, I will teach your children. Now we make in that regard a distinction with regard to the wonder of salvation between regeneration in the narrowest sense, the implanting of the seed, and then in the broader sense as it has to do with the development and the growth of that new life in the heart and life of God's child. In the narrowest sense, that regeneration is implanted in the heart without any means. God does it powerfully. He does it irresistibly. He does it without the consciousness of the elect sinner. Once God has implanted that life, now he causes it to come to expression. And he uses means then to impress upon us the wonder of his love and to bring us into the enjoyment so that that seed which was planted now sprouts and now it brings forth fruit unto the glory and honor of God. With regard to that initial work, there's no need for means. God ordinarily performs that wonder already in the womb, in infancy. But then, with regard to the development and the growth, God makes use of means. And Jehovah God then causes that life now to grow. God causes that one who has new life, the life of Christ, to seek him, to seek the things that are above, to honor him, to glorify him. And God makes use of means now to stir that child up to faithfulness, How is the primary way in which God is doing this teaching? Through the preaching of the gospel. And as the preaching of the word comes to the church, it comes also to the children, to the young people. And for that reason, we have our children in church with us. And the the preacher makes application also of the word to the children and to the youth in order that they might grow and they might increase in their understanding of Christ and the wonder of salvation in him. The catechism instruction of the church is a thorough and wonderful way that God uses again in order to teach and to instruct those little lambs so that from first grade all the way up to high school, they're being taught and they're being trained in the knowledge of Scripture and then in the doctrines that flow out of that Word of God. And for one who has children, what a delight and what a joy and what a privilege. And therefore, we seek to support that work. We see to it that our children are prepared and that they come ready. And we pray that God will bless that teaching unto their hearts, into their lives. A teaching that begins already in the home as God blesses us with children. And as we take those children in our homes and we begin to teach them about the greatness and the glory of God. We teach them who God is. His majesty, His glorious character and nature. We teach them about Jesus, their Savior and their Lord. 
And we teach them about their sin and the need for a Savior. We teach our children to live life in the home with the closest of their neighbors. We don't allow them to fight with their siblings. We teach them the spiritual principles that are necessary, that they're to show kindness, they're to show love, they're to esteem other above themselves, so that within the home, this instruction and training is taking place so that as they learn to live life in the home, they're learning forgiveness of sins. They're learning confession of sin. They're learning how to live with their nearest neighbors, their parents, those in authority, and their siblings. They're learning how to deny self. They're learning how to seek the good of others, how to make godly decisions. They're learning about discipline. They're learning the songs of Zion, the importance of membership in Christ's church. They're learning how to walk in sobriety and in godliness and the importance of living faithfully as God's children who are sober, who love the word and live out of that word. As parents, that training takes place in the home. And we pray for grace and we pray for wisdom. And we trust Jehovah is teaching our children. It's his work. All our work is in vain apart from the wonder of regeneration and his work within them. God, by his spirit, teaching, training, And then as parents, we band together in order to establish good Christian schools where our children can be educated and taught in all of the various disciplines in connection with God's Word. We realize our shortcomings, and therefore we seek out those who have talents, who have invested four or five years of college education to develop those talents in order that they might stand in our place as parents. Individuals who have labored hard and long to develop gifts in the realm of math, science, history, English, so that realizing our shortcomings and the fact that we don't have adequate time, thankful we are that we can band together and see to the instruction and training of our children under the fear and honor of God. Together accomplishing what we couldn't do as well together, alone. But another marvel of those Christian schools has to do with that which is the emphasis also in Isaiah and here in this chapter. It brings us into living fellowship and communion with each other. There's a blessedness of the covenant in that regard. So that members of different congregations now with different backgrounds serve together on boards, educate one another's children, increasing that communion, that love one for another. Teachers learn to love students who are not their own. Students love teachers. There's communion. There's fellowship. There's interaction as mothers serve together on committees, as board members serve together. There's a covenant friendship and fellowship there that's rich and blessed as we learn to labor together, to love one another, and establish friendships often for life. Of course, there are exceptions. There are children who have special needs. There are places where such schools are not able to be established. But the rule does not eliminate the exception, nor does the exception eliminate the rule. Our children must be taught as members of God's covenant. And we do so with thankfulness to God for the means that he provides, confessing this is God's work. Jehovah God is the one teaching 
As parents, we feel the helplessness at times with regard to that instruction. We watch our children and we see them walk in sin. We see them forsake the things that we're instructing them of. For the 15th time, we've had to tell them today not to do something and they keep doing it. We reprimand, we bring the word. We realize with humility, this is God's work. If God will not turn their heart, then it will not be turned. And we can feel with Judah the helplessness at times. They were in captivity. They feared the future of the church. We live in the midst of a wicked world. We look around us and we see the world and all of its depravity and all of its sinfulness. And we wonder, how will our children prosper? How will our children be able to do well? And God says, I will do it. This is my work. I am preserving my church. And I am preserving her through her children. I will cause her to grow. God comes to you as parents, grandparents, and he assures us of this covenant promise. He comes to us as a church of Jesus Christ and he says, this is my work. I am the one who will teach all the children. And I will do so by sending my own son as their savior, as their substitute. He will take his sin upon, he will take their sins upon himself and he will give you his own righteousness. I, the Lord, I will do it and there will be peace. An instruction that's not focused on man, an instruction that's not about man, it's about God. Your outward man is going to perish, but I'm going to preserve you eternally. You're weak, but I'm strong. And I will preserve and keep you as your husband, your maker, and as the one who is faithful to his covenant. And beloved, the blessing then is peace, and great shall be the peace of thy children. What a wonder. What do you want for your children? As parents, there's many things that we want for our children. We want sometimes money. We want a peaceful life. We want prosperity. We desire sometimes fame and honor and glory for the children, them to excel in the midst of this world. What do you want as children? What do you want as young people? What are your goals for life? Tragically, tragically in our day, children have money. They have gifts. They have abilities. They're honored by their peers. And yet, what happens? They don't have any peace. They commit suicide. They kill themselves. They pursue drugs. They pursue alcohol, sexual immorality. They give themselves to ruin. They have everything the world could offer, but they lack that which is most important. There's no peace. You children need peace. Peace with God. And what is peace with God? It's to know my sins are forgiven. It's to know the marvelous wonder of the righteousness that is in Him. It's to know that in all the circumstances of life, He's with me. I don't have the abilities that another has. I'm not able to attain what another is able to attain. But my value and my worth is based on what Jesus did for me and what he's doing in me by his Spirit. I turn away from that self-pity. I turn away from the temptation to compare myself with others and to depend on the attitude and actions of others for my own value. 
and I realize my value and my worth is found in my heavenly Father and the wonder of his faithfulness and his love. He's drawn me to himself. And with joy, I've come to him. I've confessed my faith in him. I've rejoiced in the wonder of his work. All that the Father giveth shall come to me. And the work of the Lord results then in our trusting in him, clinging to him, and knowing him as our Lord and our Savior. Just as little children run to their parents and they throw their arms around their parents and they cling to them, we flee to God and we cling to him and to his promise and to his faithfulness and we find peace, we find strength. This is his work. I'm weak, I'm sinful, but I'm drawn to him and he pledges his love and his faithfulness to me so that no weapon formed against me is going to be effective, no word spoken against me is going to accomplish anything because he's faithful. As we consider the faithfulness and the love of God, we grow in that love. We grow in adoration. We realize our love is only a weak reflection of the wonder of his love for us and in our hearts. But we love him because of his faithfulness and because of his goodness toward us. And God's word moves us. Beloved, this word and this chapter moves God's children to the depths of their being. Here is the love with which he loves me. I know what I am myself. I know what I've accomplished in my life. I know the shame and the guilt that is mine. But again, what is his word? Fear not, thou shalt not be ashamed, neither shalt thou be confounded. Thou shalt not be put to shame. For thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth and shall not remember the reproach of thy widowhood anymore. He's had mercy on me. He loved me when I was loveless. And he's faithful when I'd been unfaithful. He rescued me from sin and woe when I didn't deserve to be rescued. And now he gives me to know his everlasting love and faithfulness. And then he says to me, and I'm going to teach your children. What a wonder of wonders. But then most importantly, he gives me peace. By nature, I'm at war with God. By nature, I'm at war with my parents. I'm at war with my siblings. And then I get married, I'm at war with my spouse. Hard-hearted, we can be. But God works peace in our hearts. And he makes a full and complete, wondrous, Work, He brings us into his fellowship. And he brings us into his family. And he gives us his righteousness. And he gives us to know the victory that is ours. And what's the result? I'm not at war with God any longer. I submit to his will. Sometimes I feel that he's against me. But then I realize, no, that's just my own sinfulness. And then I read his word. I'm directed to his promise. I focus on Christ and what he's done for me. And I realize... He's for me. And if God be for me, who can be against me? And beloved, then there's happiness. Then there's joy. Peace is joy. It's happiness. I'm a sinner, but I'm forgiven. That peace is great. Notice the emphasis. Great shall be the peace of thy children. 
We sometimes see children that are not very sure of themselves. As a matter of fact, they're kind of frightened. They're scared. Sometimes it seems of their own shadow. They're kind of scared of the circumstances, the classmates, the situation around them, worried about how things are going to go in their home, worried even about situation around them. Jehovah's house is a house of peace. And God's children know and are assured of that peace. What we as parents wish we could give to our children, Jehovah God accomplishes so that they know that nothing, nothing can break that bond of love by which Jehovah God has loved them. And that peace confesses, I am a sinner, but I am righteous. I have been taken into the house, into the family of Jehovah God. And there's no other way. I couldn't have got there myself. He's the author. He's the teacher. And he's the one who's going to preserve me and keep every one of my children. As parents, we go forward with that blessed promise. And as parents, we teach our children to the utmost of our power, looking to God for his grace and for his blessing. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, what great wonders thou hast performed for us. We stand in awe humbled to the dust. Lord, strengthen us as we trust in thy word and thy promises. And as we train up the children thou hast given, and as parents at times despair, pray, worry, cause that we might believe that thou art the one who not only gives us to know thy righteousness and peace, but who also teaches our children. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.